Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And my name is Jeffrey Roberts. That's right. Today we're joined by our friend Jeffrey. Uh, you may know him from the chip music group Martial Art, and he also runs the Chromelodian Archive. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. It's really awesome being here with you. Yeah, um, we're stoked to have you on. Um, we were basically talking back and forth about, like, I was hitting you up for some help recording some stuff from the Famicom, because my NES, unfortunately, kind of broke recently. Uh, but then you were kind of, like, pointing out a bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, which was relevant to what we're talking about today. So I was like, oh, we should just, let's get Jeffrey on. Like, I'm happy to share what little knowledge and expertise I actually have in this field. So, yeah. It's... <laughs> oh, come on. Don't tell yourself short, man. <laughs> yeah. No, no. You, you're, you're a huge help for this episode. We're very thankful and uh, for that and excited to talk about this. So speaking of which, uh, Steve, what are we actually talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about how to play back and record chiptunes from hardware. Uh, and we'll be looking at a wide variety of consoles and their suggested setups. Yeah. So in the past, this is something we've never really gone into detail on, you know, like what the sort of optimal setup for recording is. I think in our Game Boy and Sega Genesis episodes, we did talk a little bit about how the audio quality differs across different versions of those systems. But we haven't really had a focused discussion on what's recommended, what kind of tools are available, and, you know, so forth. Yeah, and <clears throat> there's a lot of, like, different resources out there for these things. Uh, and when Patrick and I were talking off the podcast, we thought it would be a great idea to just create a nice and complete list of all of these things that lives in one place. So we've prepared sort of a crash course here, and we generally break things down into four steps for each system. First, we'll be reviewing the available sound outputs on a given console, so how the console out of the box operates. Secondly, we'll talk about if mods are recommended for improving the audio quality on your system. Third, we'll go over what kinds of audio formats exist. And lastly, what kinds of tools are needed to play back those audio formats on hardware. And, of course, this all applies to whether or not we're talking about uh, sampling classic video game soundtracks or uh, original chiptune compositions. So the systems that we'll be taking a close look at today are the NES and the Nintendo Famicom, the Game Boy, the Super Nintendo, and the Sega Genesis. But we'll also talk briefly about a couple other systems as well. And uh, any systems we don't cover today, we'll be likely to talk about their setups, you know, in their own specific episodes when we get to them. Yeah, I think our cutoff is around 1995, just kind of like a, a it, that's basically where we're going to stop. There's got, there's some overlap, but 1995 is about where I think we're going to stop with the consoles for this episode. So let's get started. So we should probably give a brief overview of the most commonly used connector types uh, seen on consoles from this era. Yeah, so we can start with perhaps the most universal connector of this era of game consoles and home PCs, the RF connection. RF stands for radio frequency. So to generate the signal, consoles use a radio frequency modulator. In uh, the simplest terms, an RF modulator takes the video and audio signals from your console and converts them to the same sort of television signal that your TV would be uh, receiving either over cable or uh, over the air through an antenna. Uh, anyone listening has very likely used one of these at some point. Uh, you basically connect something that resembles a wired box, the great connector in the case of the NES, and connect it directly to the RF out on your console, uh, and then to the antenna port uh, on your TV. In the US, you would then set your TV to either channel 3 or 4, and boom, there's your game on the TV. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Your parents help you hook it up. Yes, though I think Atari had it uh, set for channels 2 and 3 because it's Atari. 
Uh, Europe used channel 36, I think I read, and Japan's standard channels were 1 and 2. Also worth noting that some consoles had RF modulators built in and some do not. So there are different types of RF boxes or RF switches, and sometimes they're called uh, in these cases. Older RF units will use what's known as a twin lead connector. It's basically two wires in parallel to connect to the TV. Older TVs have this type of connector. You may have seen some uh, something similar to this before. Uh, this was replaced with the F connector, which is a type of connector on the NES RF switch, that kind of screw-like extension. I, I hate that thing. Uh, with the wire in the yeah. middle, which is, you know, it's very well, common now. Yeah, I mean, if you hate the, you know, the F connector or whatever, the twin lead connectors were such a pain to get things working. Uh, yeah, I remember you basically, those too. Yeah, that's, oh, man. Yeah. Like, you basically had to razor blade them in half and then take the wires out and then literally, like, undo the screws and, like, pu- like clamp them between the screws or whatever. And they'd always come apart or, if, like, you move the TV in the wrong direction or something, they'd come out of the back of the TV um, you know, and a lot of it's funny when you work with a lot of the older game, uh, Japanese game consoles that come with the wiring, assuming you're going to connect to twin leads. So, you know, most of the older RFs or system, uh, like basically if like I have a Sega Mark three, it came with a twin lead connector basically. Um, but I guess in the U S they just assumed you had at least a VCR or something, you know, to, to hook up, uh, you know, to, uh, an Nintendo uh, port or whatever. Uh, and that's, that's the thing that like, you know, I didn't have that. I always had the twin lead growing up. So, you know, every time we'd uh, I'd get a new console or something, we'd have to go to the Radio Shack and, like, you know, basically build something to make the RF work. Uh, so you can imagine the quality yeah. <laughs> that was coming through my TV. You know, it was old TV to begin with, but also, you know, basically things daisy-chained to make it work. Yeah, we, we may be nostalgic for the gaming experiences we had on these consoles, but we're not nostalgic for these types of, of connectors. That the, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm so well, glad these things are, like, obsolete. You know, I mean, it's funny. I'm complaining about something two decades too late, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, man. someone came up with a solution for it. That's <laughs> yeah. You know, like <laughs> so. So th- the next thing you'll see a lot are AV connectors. There are three common styles for these: RCA, DIN connectors, and proprietary connectors. RCA connectors, sometimes referred to as phono connectors, use separate color-coded jacks for audio and video. The yellow connector carries the video signal, and the red and white ones carry the audio. A DIN connector is a circular connector with multiple pins that carry the audio and video signals. Similarly, other proprietary connectors, such as Nintendo's multi-out connector, carry audio and video on separate pins in a single connector. But both of these usually terminate in RCA plugs anyway. So something I learned while putting this together, and I thought I'd mention it, and I feel stupid for not understanding completely. I often, while putting this stuff together, feel really stupid, uh, and I come up, you know, that's <laughs> oh, it's, me too. like the whole. I mean, it's so funny when you find out something that you didn't know, and then I, it's like something I probably tell some people to be like, "What do you mean you didn't know that?" But th- it's, this is it's that, the point of this. It's the point of this, right? It's just a learning <laughs> experience for everybody involved, right? Yes, exactly, one hundred percent, and that, that's why it's so great. So here, composite is the proper name for a type of video connection, right? So if you have, you saw like, you know, the yellow, the red, and the white wires, right? The yellow is a composite connector, right? So when someone says RCA or RCA connector, you're actually only referring to the port type and connection type. The composite signal can be carried across RCA ports, but the RCA and composite aren't the exact same thing. So some people call, you know, get me an RCA cable, but I mean, it's not necessarily that the RCA is the same thing as the composite. So, you know, we should probably just say composite cable. I think a lot of people do, but I've definitely, like, referred to it as an RCA cable. It technically oh, me is. Too. 
Absolutely. You know? <laughs> I, I, conf- I conflate those terms all the damn time, so... Yeah. And so, I mean, to drive the point home further, most RF modulators actually use RCA ports uh, to transmit the images uh, and sound on older game consoles. So it's like this exact same port as what you'd use for AV, except that it transmits RCA. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because it's definitely something I've been like, hey, hand, hand me the RCA cable or whatever. And yeah, okay, it's an RCA cable, but, you know, it, it's not the RCA and the composite are you know, there's like a Venn diagram where they meet in the middle, basically, but they're different technically. Hmm. So, so as for the sound, the white RCA plug is usually meant to indicate left sound or mono sound, and the red is usually used to indicate the right channel sound output. And this is funny because, like, the NES has uh, yellow and red RCA plugs, so like that doesn't match that. What's up with that? <laughs> I was trying to actually do some research into that earlier today. And I really can't find anything. So like, just like pure speculation here, if I had to guess, it was probably one of those standards that like maybe evolved over time as more consumer products came out. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at like early like stereos and uh, like Steve, I know you've got some MSX equipment that just they don't have color coding at all. It's just a single black RCA port mm-hmm. that that's usually labeled with like text or something like that. Like the color standard just seems to be something that's crept in over the decades. It's just one of those th- things that's totally arbitrary because, uh, you know, the signal is a signal and it doesn't matter how you color the cable. So it's just kind of a funny thing. Yeah, I guess it's just so that, like, you kind of have some kind of order to it. But, yeah, it, it, the signal is the signal. I think that's why it's so funny. Like, as, uh, you know, I do have a bunch of MSXs and I'm looking at one right here and it's just two black plugs in the back. Like, literally, one just says audio, one just says video. And I've also seen black and white. So, yeah, maybe at some point they really decide there was a standard. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing because, like, and if I recall, right, when you get a regular NES, you did get the actual wire to connect it, right, was red and yellow too, right? The original AV that came with it, correct? I think so. I I only have vague, vague memories of ever seeing a complete inbox one, but... Yeah, if someone's listening to the podcast and knows whether or not, I, I mean, I could be completely wrong. They might not even include an RCA, but I seem to recall having, for some reason, a red and yellow RCA, or see, I'm saying RCA, red and yellow uh, AV cable for this in particular. But I don't remember if that was just because maybe that's what I thought I needed or. So uh, to not dwell on this tangent too much, but I'm, I'm looking at the back of my Amiga monitor right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, white is the mono audio cable. Uh, yellow mm-hmm. is video. And red, mm-hmm. strangely enough, is a separate cable for color, because you had to, yeah, you had you had to have what? a separate color. Yeah, the video was basically split over two signals, actually. Oh, so you've got your Luma and your Chroma. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of odd. So that's again another example of the those three colors not being used uh, consistently. Interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. Anyways, uh, getting back on track here. (laughs) (laughs) So the other kind of port that you'd see for audio would be a phone connector, probably more commonly known as a headphone jack. Sorry, I'm just uh, untilting my uh, Amiga monitor there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that one's pretty self-explanatory. The sound output can be both stereo and mono from those. Uh, They use that standard 3.5 millimeter or eighth inch plug. This is common to most, if not all, handheld consoles and uh, somewhat common on consoles. Yeah, and I guess that leads into kind of the last thing that kind of gives sound or that you'd hear things. And that's basically what, you know, we could just mention handhelds, but handhelds had embedded speakers. 
So that basically covers the standard ways that consoles we're going to review provided their sound. Now let's actually get into the interesting meat of the episode here. This is the consoles themselves. We're going to start with the Nintendo Entertainment System. So uh, to start at the top here, sound outputs. We just talked about this a little bit briefly, but what do we have again? So on the NES, you have two options, basically, and that's, you know, kind of outside the box. You have the RF output and the RCA AV out. And this is a pretty obvious starting point, but anytime a console gives you an option between RF and proper AV output, you want the audio from the AV output. <laughs> without, without question here. Without question. So that, that's, you know, if you learn anything from... <laughs> this episode you know if you're not going to be doing any modding that's really the thing av output is superior to rf rf is a single cable that has audio and video signals that pass through it simultaneously which is not ideal for the quality audio uh and not really for the video as anyone who's ever used an rf cable probably knows um and you know just trying to picking through this it gets a little complicated with nes models as the nintendo famicom and the top-loading NES 101, which is, you know, the top loader we call it here, both only have RF, while the standard NES toaster and the top-loading AV Famicom, known as the HVC 101, have RCA AV out. Either way, you're going to want the models with the AV. The twin Famicom has AV as well, actually. Oh, cool. So to demonstrate the differences between these two sources, I've recorded a couple of examples from hardware. Let's listen to a familiar melody from Final Fantasy pumped through the RF signal and sampled through my television. <laughs> <laughs> and here's that same sample again, only from the Ness's RCA audio output. So the second example clearly sounds better. It's less muffled. It sounds less like it's kind of underwater. Uh, it just has a more clean and crisp sound overall. But an observant listener might have noticed that there was also a constant hum, uh, which was particularly noticeable during the click-off uh, that I added to the beginning of that track. If you're listening to this podcast somewhere that's kind of noisy, you might have missed it. But, you know, here it is again amplified. So it's easily preferable to the RF output, but in quiet music or music with lots of rests, it can be still be annoying, actually, technically. So this brings us to our second order of business, sound mods. If you want a cleaner sound from the NES, modding it is recommended. We'll link to some tutorials in the SoundCloud comments. So the short version is that you can wire your own audio outputs directly to the NES's CPU. This bypasses the filtering and amplifiers that the AV out normally has to pass through, and this reduces the noise. Here's the Final Fantasy Prelude again, with most of the noise gone. Yeah, in this example, we even amplified the click-off relative to the rest of the track here to stress how little noise there is now, because unamplified, the noise would be even less noticeable than it is here. It's a huge improvement, and an added bonus with this modification is that it can give the NES stereo sound, because NES is technically mono, but it's unfortunately quite limited and probably not as cool as it sounds. Let's give a quick listen to an example, and then we'll explain what's going on. <laughs> 
So here's Woodman from Mega Man 2, sampled from my NES in stereo. So the reason you can give your NES a pseudo stereo sound is because the sound output happens to come across two different pins from the Nintendo CPU, the 2A03. Channels 1 and 2, which are your pulse channels, come from one pin of the 2A03, while channels 3, 4, and 5, your triangle, your noise, and your DPCM samples, are bundled on another pin. Normally these get mixed together into a single mono output before being passed through the RF or the RCA output, but tapping the idea directly from the 2A03 pins allows you to give each of them their own discrete output. You know, anything that gives you some kind of separation is welcome, in theory. Uh, maybe if you're making original music, you like to compress one set of sound channels, maybe apply some effects like reverb to one, but not the other. But the main takeaway here is that this doesn't really help to enhance game soundtracks in any way. Yeah, so to elaborate on why that doesn't really help game soundtracks, so channels one and two of the NES are typically the melodies, or melody and counterpoint, uh, while the rest of the channels are typically your rhythm section. So a more ideal sep stereo separation, if you had total control over it, would be to like center the rhythm section maybe and pan the melodies and you know counterpoint apart from each other. But the NES hardware just doesn't allow for that. Uh, instead, you're hard panning melodies to one side and rhythm section to the other, and it just makes for like a kind of unbalanced and unwelcome change. It's kind of reminiscent of like the early stereo mixes that you'd hear on say like 60s Beatles records where the like the vocals would be hard panned to one side uh, and yeah. like your bass bass and your drums would be on the other channel like the the stereo output of the NES kind of sounds pretty much as obnoxious as that does and it's funny because that if we're trying to ex you know explain why it's not that great of a thing maybe the intro to Wooden Man wasn't the best example because that actually does sound kind of cool but that's a unique case where the track isn't arranged in such a way that it's using the pulse channels percussively in the introduction as well. So that kind of comes out more interesting, but the rest of that track suffers from what we just talked about. It's melodies on the side, rhythm on the other, and it's just divided in a kind of ugly way. So like Steve mentioned there though, like the possibility of adding extra reverb and compression and things like that, something that you can take advantage of if you're composing specifically with this modification in mind. Like I use it for martial arts live performances all the time. Ah, oh, okay, that's great. Yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. It's something I always kind of pictured doing, but since I don't really make very much chip music myself, I never got around to it. So I always thought like, oh, there could be a use for that stereo separation. And that's awesome that you guys actually use that. That's cool. So let's move on to the next order of business, which would be audio formats. Yes. So the current audio standard for that Nintendo is NSF, which stands for Nintendo Sound Format. Uh, you'll find rips of game soundtracks and modern NES music uh, as .NSF files. There's also NSFE files, where the E stands for extended. It's literally the same thing as NSF. They're just NSF files that have been converted to have more space for information about them, like putting in custom track names. NSF tracks are normally labeled track 1, track 2, etc., 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 and don't let you have actual song names in there. And NSFE allows for custom track lengths and fades, etc., etc., instead of looping forever. It's what you'd be looking for if you want to listen to an NSF file and have it feel more like an album, I guess. But it's a less supported format. 
Before we move on, we should probably point out that there's actually another format for NES music, and this is something that I wasn't really aware of. There are a handful of NES soundtracks ripped in the .VGM format out there. So there are some cool things about the VGM format. Like It does support a ton of platforms, some of which we'll be talking about later in the episode. But to my knowledge, the VGM format doesn't really have any benefits over NSF when it comes to the NES. Uh, and it's not really going to help you play back uh, your own NES music on hardware, as far as I know. So we're just kind of glassing over that one for now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is VGM for NES, but you know that's kind of it's an interesting kind of thing, and it's cool that some people are ripping soundtracks in that format, but it doesn't really help us out. So, um, moving on to the final step here, you find a game soundtrack in the Nintendo Sound format, or you know maybe make your own original music in as an NSF file using Fama Tracker, MML, or some other program, and you want to actually just play your music off the console. So uh, where do we go from here? So, yep, if you want to play it off your American, you know, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System console, there's only one thing that you'd buy, and that's the Power Pack from Retro USB for 135 bucks. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit pricey, but I, I love this thing. I love the Power Pack. It's so bad. The Power Pack is a flash cart, which is a NES cartridge that allows you to easily run games, music, and even your own code on an NES. Using a PC, you can put your NES ROMs and NSF files onto a compact flash card, and the power pack acts sort of like a compact flash card drive for your NES, and allows you to load pretty much whatever you want on an actual NES console. Yeah, then that's all pretty much all there is to it. The power pack isn't the only Nintendo flash card on the market. You can get a cheaper one. Uh, the EverDrive N8 is $17 cheaper, uh, so that's another option. And it's also a great flash card, but it doesn't directly support NSF. Uh, you'd have to use a converter to convert your NSF into a .NES ROM first. And there are tools for that. Uh, so it is possible to get the audio you want using the EverDrive. It just takes a little bit more preparation. And instead of buying a flash cart, we've seen people do things like hack NES cartridges and put their own ROMs with the desired music on them using their own ROM chips. Yeah, I remember actually Anamanaguchi used to do that a long time ago uh, before there were good like flash cart solutions that were widely available. But that's obviously a lot more hands-on, and anyone invested in that kind of technique probably doesn't need an overview of recording NES audio from us. Yeah. Anyway, we probably also should mention the Famicom sound expansion is possible on the NES. Yeah, so this brings us into like another subject of discussion here. There are a few options for this. The Power Pack and EverDrive can emulate some of the sound expansions, so you don't need the original chips uh, in the cartridges, like the VRC6. Uh, however, the NES itself isn't normally rigged to support sound expansion, so it needs a little help. Yeah, and there are a couple options for this. The first is that you, if you have a power pack, you can mod your NES, um, but it, and it's a really, really simple mod. It's the first mod I've ever done to anything in my yes. entire life, and I was literally sweating into the console because <laughs> I was so nervous. But you literally just mod, uh, you just take a little resistor and you put it between pin three and pin nine on the expansion board connector, and then all of a sudden, for no reason, your power pack now you know plays uh, expansion audio. For, for no for no reason you know i, I don't <laughs> need to know that kind of level of thing i i was sweating into there and i put i followed the directions and then i was playing castlevania with the expansion audio it was great uh, let's, let's treat our audience with a little bit more respect than that pin three on the audio expand i'm uh, sorry on the expansion connector is the audio in pin that the nes didn't really use and pin nine actually connects to the uh, one of the unused connectors on the cartridge so that, uh, that that happens to be the pin that the power pack routes its audio through. So all you're doing is 
bridging the connection between the two and allowing the unused pin on your NES cartridge pipe into the audio feed of the NES. And that's only for the power pack, though, basically, because the power pack was set up that way. Pretty much only the power pack is set up that way. I mean, there's a possibility that there could be some Famicom to NES adapters that route it to that pin. But prior to the power pack, I don't think anything actually used that. Well, the same mod should work for the EverDrive as well, right? Does that Isn't that set up to work the same way, I think? I, I think so. I believe so. Cool. I don't have one myself, so I can't confirm, but... But yeah, to back up what Steve said, like I'm not an experienced modder. I don't really tinker with electronics directly myself. Um, but having, but you know, Joey helped me with that mod a long time ago. And opening your NES with a screwdriver and getting to the motherboard isn't very difficult. So this really is a very entry level mod. Like if you want to practice soldering, like you could practice this mod on your NES and like not worry about destroying it. Honestly, pins three and nine are not far from each other. It's like really a simple connection. It's as easy as modding gets, really. Honestly. The other option is to get a device that makes it work without modding. It's called the Enio board. I guess it's E-N-I-O. And that makes use of the unused expansion port on the bottom of your NES. I believe some older NES models may have had the expansion port exposed, but most models you just have to break off that little plastic tab hidden underneath the expansion port cover. So I guess that's technically a small mod, but it doesn't require any finesse or soldering, just breaking off a small piece of plastic, which I think most people are, you know, you're basically breaking the outer case of your console. So I think most people are good at breaking things. Um, So once you do that, you plug in the uh, NEO board or ENEO or whatever board to the hidden expansion port, and that's all you really need to do. The ENEO board itself uh, also serves some other cool functions. Since it itself uh, isn't just for getting expansion audio, it's a connector. Uh, it lets you plug in uh, Famicom-specific peripherals that didn't normally work on the NES. So personally, I've got expansion audio working on my NES the earlier way through modding. Uh, I've done the stereo audio mod that we've talked about before, but on top of that, I've routed the expansion audio from the power pack to its own RCA jack, giving me three different outputs. So I get the two pulse channels together, the triangle, the noise, and the DPCM together, and I've got a third output that gives me the power pack's sound expansion audio. Uh, however, just to get the best of both worlds, I've added a switch that lets me route the expansion audio through the normal NES audio path uh, through a variable resistor so I can dial in the level as I want and I can have it all come out of the normal um, one-channel audio that the uh, the NES would normally use. And so you have an example here. Yeah, so I've actually sampled the prelude from Akumajo Densetsu so you can hear what the expansion audio s- sounds like through a power pack and on a modded NES. And in this example, I've panned the NES voices to one side and the VRC6 voices to the other side, so you can hear the separation of the two. Yeah, and we'll just give the whole track a listen because it, uh, it sounds pretty cool.
to keep in mind is that because these devices are emulating the sound expansion, there can be some small differences in accuracies compared to the actual hardware, which is a funny thing to think about, that there's emulation going on when you're using an actual console in front of you, but that's what's happening without the actual game cartridges and their sound expansion chips. But one thing to keep in mind, Steve, uh, the power pack doesn't actually emulate all of the sound expansions, right? Yeah, so that's another thing, you know, so in addition to it being an emulation of it, the power pack is incapable of emulating MMC5 and VRC7 uh, audio, uh, which means that there's a second limitation. So you're good on N163, you're good on VRC6. Um, you're good on FDS, but I think the FDS quality might be the worst, but it's been years. I don't know if there's like been updates. So I seem yeah. to recall FDS being a little off, but you know. I think most people use this to emulate VRC6. I think that's the one I've heard. And even then, a lot of my tracks sound completely different on the power pack than they do in Family Tracker or off my own other rig. Um, there, there are some weird interpretations of the, the basically what I had in my NSF file. Uh, and it does sound kind of different or off sometimes based on what I was expecting. Interesting. That That's a definitely a subject for another discussion. In the future, I'd definitely yeah. like to talk about emulation accuracy and we could sort of re- mm-hmm. review which uh, things emulate things well, which things don't do such a good job at it. Um, one other thing to point out, uh, I think Jeff mentioned this earlier, there are some ways to run expansion audio from the original Famicom carts on your NES. Uh, like you said, there might be some adapters that rig it that way, but... I don't think there's a lot of people collecting Famicom cartridges who just only own an NES and not an actual Famicom, you know, so I don't think that's that important of a subject of discussion. We can just sort of gloss over that for now and just move on to the Famicom. Well, actually, before we talk about the Famicom, I did want to bring up the Top Loader NES. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I almost forgot about that. Yes. So the typical Top Loader NES 101 only has an RF output, which is, you know, not great. Luckily, there are a couple AV mods you can do, uh, one of which I've done to my system. Uh, So here's a quick before and after comparing the RF output to the audio available through the AV mod. So the top loader has a couple other issues though. It doesn't really have that unused expansion port that's on the normal NES. So the Enio board and the sound expansion mod aren't really easy options here. And even if it did have that connector, the cartridge connector pin that the power pack outputs the expansion audio through just doesn't exist on that NES model. Wow, so yeah. you'd so if you want to get expansion audio on a top loader NES, you have to modify both the console and the power pack to pass the audio through another unused pin and then somehow tie that into the NES 101's audio path. And like personally for me, wasn't really worth the effort to do that. Yeah, no, no way. Um, so the top loader is not our first recommendation for recording from hardware. Uh, unless you're really attached to it and prefer to use it, we generally recommend using the original NES and Famicom systems first. So speaking of the Famicom, uh, let's move on to that. It does have the same inherent problem that the top loader NES has, since it only has RF output. So if we're only talking about the unmodded consoles, the NES actually comes out on top in terms of sound quality, unless you have an HVC 101, which is the also known as the AV Famicom. It should theoretically have similar sound output to the standard uh, you know, toaster NES that we have here. But if you want to stick with the vanilla Famicom, like just the regular Famicom, it can be modded to have AV out. And of course, the Famicom does support sound expansion by design, 
Uh, so even cooler, there's even a great line of devices specifically built for music playback. Yes, uh, TNS, which stands for Terra Network Systems, manufactures a whole line of Famicom-based units that plug directly into the cart slot. Uh, they release them in small batches, and they are incredibly hard to find, though. Yeah, I, I like so it's funny because you know we like to talk with Trackman. He was just on the episode, and he has one of these devices as well. And there's like hidden. It, it, there's such a trail of different kinds of these devices, uh, and so, such a variety of ones that I've never even heard of. Uh, I think like uh, Trackman was telling me off podcast that the very first thing that TNS made was like something for the MSX actually. Um, so yeah um really you know he's gonna he'll probably you know write in the comments over here but uh you know so they they kind of have a longer history i mean it's funny because they refer to as terror network systems but trackman's pretty sure it's just one guy (laughs) so who's been doing this so that's why you know it's hard to find so i basically had to get really lucky to get one of these so uh, I actually have a TNS HFC3, which I purchased from my good friend Rana from Japan. And, you know, Rana listens to this podcast too, so thank you very much. Uh, I'll attach a picture of it here. Uh, basically, the unit can load up NSF files directly from an SD card. And then it actually has a 3.5 millimeter sound jack out at the top of it, so you can plug that directly in. But what's really cool and what uh, stands it apart from any other solution is that you can actually just attach a Famicom cart to the back of it. So I can plug in any expansion audio cartridge and use the carts to help me play back the NSFs. That gives me the true expansion audio directly from the chip. Um, So let's take a listen to the Famicom's regular sound output via RF. And I apologize in advance for how bad this sounds. (laughs) And then let's listen to the output through TNS HFC3. (laughs) Oh, wow. What was up with that RF out, man? That so was like I think, terrible. I think that one, my Famicom has seen better days. I think we're hearing some of the power supply in there. I'm like 100% sure we're hearing it. Um, so it, it just sounded freaking terrible. And even through my TV, I can still hear most of that. Um, so it's it's pretty bad. Gotcha. Yeah, so the, the, the RF probably is not always that bad as the example we just played. It's, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I have to imagine that, you know, especially since I pulled that unit literally out of a junk bin in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, I have to imagine that uh, it could sound a little better than that. But even then, you can still hear that the sound of the actual music coming out there is very dull and kind of bad. Yeah. Um, like, just lifeless. Yeah, there's a really harsh low pass on there. So, actually, I actually have something else that can enhance the audio for this, too. There's the TNS HFX4. Um, it's kind of like an expansion board. And you may have seen these things like slot expanders where you can put multiple carts in there. This actually has a bunch of slots where you can put every single expansion audio cart onto the board and then plug it into the main TNS HFC3 unit. Therefore, you don't have to like keep swapping units out. This also is kind of cool because it will let you play multi-chip tracks, which is kind of awesome. Um, but I'm not going to play a multi-chip track here because I want to highlight something else. You're able to actually mix the actual levels of the you know, the expansion audio and everything on here. It has a bunch of like pots, basically. You can kind of turn knobs and you can kind of decide like, you know, how you want to mix the expansion audio, similar to the mod that Jeff has on his system where the expansion audio can be turned up or down. So uh, I I corrected beginning to make it sound the way it should sound. 
I, th- I feel. So uh, let's listen to beginning uh, with some corrections done by my TNSHFX4. What the hell was that? It said you made the 2803 disappear like halfway through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just hoping that you could really get to hear the sawtooth because it's hard to hear. So that's about that sawtooth at about 50% louder than normal. Uh, so I, I hope that everyone really appreciates that because that's where it should be, uh, in my opinion. I think it needs to be just a little bit louder, actually. <laughs> there's there's ways to do that, too. That I, I actually, if you turn it up any louder than that, it just starts to feedback and make weird noises. So. This is everything wrong with the Akumajo uh, Densetsu soundtrack amplified. <laughs> anyway, so uh, moving on here, with the NES and Famicom covered, let's move on to another system entirely, the Nintendo Game Boy. Boy is an easy system to talk about when it comes to audio output. It has a built-in speaker that's mono, but it has a headphone jack that's stereo. So there's no real mystery here as to where you're going to get your audio from. Now, there are a bunch of different Game Boy models, and the quality of the sound will vary among them, uh, quite noticeably sometimes. We're not going to go over all of the comparisons available, because there's just there's a ton of them. Um, but we will play a few that you can find on HerbertWexelbaum.com and aqualex.ws. Uh, just Google Game Boy Sound Comparisons and you'll find these pages. They're fantastic resources. So we'll start with the Game Boy Color, since it's a very popular version of the Game Boy. Here's the audio example from Herbert Wexelblom. There's a lot of background noise in there, and there's a high-pitched hum. It's just not very good sounding, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the Game Boy Color can be modded to have a good chunk of that noise removed, but before we talk about mods, I'll point out that the original Brick Game Boy, also known as the DMG-01, is considered to be the best version of Game Boy, at least when we've talked about unmodded units, and it's basically because of the audio. It's known to have a thicker, beefier sound. So I found the beefier sound actually a little difficult to demonstrate with a given example, especially if you're listening like in a noisy environment or in something like laptop speakers. Uh, but I'll play an example that, although I could barely hear the difference on my laptop speakers, I could hear it clearly in headphones. What you're going to hear is the two devices alternating. One brief sound on the Game Boy Color, followed by the same sound on the DMG01. And it loops a few times. So what you're going to hear is Game Boy Color, original Game Boy. Game Boy Color, original Game Boy. Uh, So let's give that a listen. So like I just said, uh, maybe right now you didn't hear a difference, but with a close listen on headphones, the second sound almost sounds a little lower pitched, or there's just more of a low end to it. And because you can clean up the original Game Boy with the sound mod as well, it's a great starting place. So here we're going to listen to the regular DMG-01, followed by a modded DMG-01. We're going to listen to just the very beginning of the track, back to back, so you'll hear noise leading up to the start of the track on the unmodded Game Boy, and how little noise there is in comparison leading up to the start on the modded Game Boy. 
We should point out, however, that because the Wexel Bomb site is an older resource, there are some uh, recent mods to the Game Boy Color that are just overlooked and missing. The uh, idea that you have to have the DMG-01 to get the best Game Boy sound is kind of outdated now, since the color can be modded to be just as good, and in some ways can be even better than the original Game Boy. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And unfortunately, we overlooked this in our Game Boy episode. So, you know, thankfully, you sent me the link to Aqualex's sound comparisons to set the record straight. So let's listen to a couple of those comparisons now. First, you'll hear an unmodified Game Boy Color, followed by a Game Boy Color that has the newer noise cancel and bass boost mods. Yeah, the noise is almost entirely gone in that second example. That's much better. We should also mention that because the Game Boy Color has a more powerful processor than the original Game Boy, there are some instances where the original DMG can choke if you're running like a really dense track in LSDJ. So if you're composing your own chip music, that's another reason why you might prefer the Game Boy Color. Ah, yeah. This I do remember hearing that before. You know, since I haven't messed around much with LSDJ myself, I've never run into that. Um, but I know other people in the community have definitely run into that, where they're trying to make the thickest, most dense track they can possible, and on the original Game Boy, it just doesn't cut it. It, it like slows down and hangs up. Or is prone to crashing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's talk briefly about the mods themselves. So basically, we're, we're talking about the same principle that, that we did on the NES. Um, there's a mod called the Pro Sound Mod. It's kind of a fancy name, but it's just the same concept as before, where you're wiring more directly to the CPU bypass some of the circuitry and there'll be less noise um so you do a pro sound mod to the original game boy to get the noise out you do the pro sound mod to the game boy color to get some of the noise out but that's where the the game boy color isn't quite as good so you know i'm a little uh we, we can link to a tutorial here because i haven't looked too closely at it yet but the basic idea um behind the newer game boy color mod i believe is that you add it involves adding more capacitors and there's something, I think uh, I think you said something about this, Jeffrey, but like you have to also have the LCD screen mod, right? Otherwise, like you'll destroy your system or something. So, so yeah, this is something that I'm, I'm literally just learning about while doing research for this episode. Uh, there's something that's been called the pin three mod for the Game Boy Color, where you lift a pin on the, LE, or sorry, the LCD driver for the screen. And by doing so, you are basically getting rid of the bulk of noise that is generated by the Game Boy Color and introduced into the audio path. Uh, The issue with doing that, by lifting that pin, uh, you're disabling one of the functions of the LCD driver, which is used to improve the screen contrast. So you almost end up trading off image quality on your screen for improved audio quality. Now, I was talking with Ben Ven, uh, one of the guys who kind of pioneered this mod, mm -hmm. And uh, he explained to me that he's encountered a couple of different LCD revisions in a Game Boy Color, and some of them are more drastically affected than others. And the other thing he mentioned is that this is kind of like a your mileage may vary type mod, uh, because there are some other factors that will affect both the audio quality and your screen quality. And he also pretty much straight up mentioned that it is possible that you may wear out your Game Boy Color's screen even faster by doing this. 
Uh, uh. So it's kind of it's kind of a risky mod in general. But one of the things that he did drive home to me, and I don't know if this is just him selling his mod kits or not. I, I, I presume he's being like uh, honest and truthful here. Mm-hmm. But what he told me was that if you use one of the mods that installs a uh, Game Boy Advance SP screen, one of the, I think it's called the AGS 101 screens, into your Game Boy Color, which will give you a backlit screen, uh, this mod is 100% compatible with that will give you great image quality and you don't really need to worry about wearing at your screen. And apparently, even with this backlight mod on your Game Boy Color, combined with this Pin 3 mod, you get like a noiseless console. And in some ways, it's better than a stock Game Boy Color. That's awesome. Wow. That's really, really cool. So let's move on to audio formats. If you're making music natively on the Game Boy with something like LSDJ or Nano Loop, you don't have to worry about formats since you know you're just, you press the play button in the software that you already have running on your Game Boy. Uh, you know, pretty self-explanatory. However, if you're talking about ripped Game Boy soundtracks or making your own music on PC with something like MML, we're working with the extension .gbs. GBS stands for Game Boy Sound, uh, as you might expect. And this brings us to our final step, which is playing these formats on hardware. There are a couple different Game Boy flash carts available, but some of them are older, like they're often out of stock, and can be pretty hard to find these days. So we'll just mention the, the two most popular and most widely available choices for the time being. Uh, you can get the EverDrive, which uh, has a few different models available, and they range from $59 to $129. And there's also the El Cheapo SD series made by Benven, who we talked about earlier. And uh, these range from $30 to $75. Yes. Um, but for, as far as I know, none of these directly support the GBS format unlike how the NES PowerPack supports NSF. So you need to convert GBS files back into the same format as Game Boy ROMs, which simply have the file extension of .gb. So there's software for that. It's called GBS2GB uh, with the number two. It's an inconvenient extra step, but it's great being able to hear full Game Boy soundtracks off the actual system that way. Yeah, and allows you to hear Game Boy Color soundtracks on the original DMG01 which is a pretty cool thing because there are a lot of Game Boy Color games that don't work on the original Game Boy. They, they needed the be- the more powerful processing and extra graphics that the Game Boy Color allowed for. Uh, so you normally have no way of listening to the soundtracks on the original Game Boy. Um, but the GBS is just a rip of the music. And of course, the music is it, the original Game Boy can handle that no problem. So uh, I have sampled here a track from a German Game Boy Color game called Das Geheimnis der Happy Hippo Insel. Uh, this is the music to Area 4, which I sample from a pro-modded DMG01, uh, I think maybe like 10 years ago already. Thank you. 
I love that soundtrack, by the way. It's so good. That soundtrack is amazing. So before we move on entirely from the Game Boy, let's talk briefly about the Super Game Boy systems for the Super Nintendo and Super Famicom. Super Game Boy for the Super NES. Game Boy games in color. Intense. The Super Game Boy carts that let you play Game Boy games on the Super Nintendo are actually full-fledged Game Boy systems themselves. They just piggyback on top of this SNES and just route their audio and video through the console. In short, it really is just a Game Boy that lets you have a SNES controller and a TV screen. Uh, so the most obvious choice for audio output with one of these is just to use the AV out of the SNES. Just keep in mind that if you're dead set on using a Super Game Boy instead of an original Game Boy or the Game Boy Color for some reason, you'll actually want the Super Game Boy 2, which was only released in Japan for the Super Famicom. Uh, the reason for this is that the original Super Game Boy plays roughly 2.5% faster than the Game Boy is supposed to. So not only is it too fast, uh, the audio is also a little higher pitched than it should be as a result. I think that's that's kind of even the bigger problem there. So here's an example where we're using from the Super Nintendo episode, where we play an excerpt from Operation Contra from the Super Game Boy, then followed by how it's supposed to sound, which is a bit slower and lower pitched. Now, if you wanted to add to the mountain of potential mods you can do, you actually can mod the first version of the Super Game Boy, the one that came out in here in the, uh, in the States on the Super Nintendo, to fix the speed issue. But right out of the box, the Super Game Boy 2 has the speed issue already fixed, which is why it gets our recommendation. And if you only have an American Super Nintendo and not a Super Famicom, uh, thankfully it's not hard to get Super Famicom games working on your system. That is, if you don't mind breaking your Super Nintendo a little. Yeah, it's actually really quite silly. Most Japanese games can plug into your SNES and work just fine. You just have to break a couple of plastic barriers inside the mouth of your cartridge slot of your SNES console. So, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is like if you have a setup for an SNES, a Famicom, a Super Famicom unit, just the actual system itself, is dirt cheap. They are like 40 bucks. So you can even just import a Super Famicom and just run it that way too. <laughs> you know, if you're uncomfortable breaking like your childhood SNES, oh, it's cool. not a huge investment. Yeah. yeah I've never I really mean, looked them up before. I didn't realize they were like cheap. That's cool. Oh, they're, they're dirt cheap. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to spend the time to buy a Super Game Boy 2, the Super Game Boy 2 might actually be more expensive than a Super Famicom. So ah. that's something to think about too. Interesting. So speaking of the mountain of potential mods you can do, if you use a Super Game Boy and want a more direct audio source than the Super Nintendo's AV out, you can actually add your own directly to the cartridge. It might look a little bit funny, but you essentially can do the Pro Sound mod to the Super Game Boy cartridge and have something like a headphone jack sticking out of the Super Game Boy. So for the cleanest sound, you just hook your audio cable directly to that and bypass the Super Nintendo's audio path altogether. One second here, I just wanted to double check something. Because uh, I thought I thought the Super Game Boy had a sound. The Super Game Boy Two had a sound out on it, didn't it? I know. Th- Am I making that up? You know, I thought it did, but I think I was mistaken. I think I I just saw mods for it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because I I think I've never seen one without the mod. It's funny that you said that because I used to think that was a thing. I was like, oh, the Super Game Boy Two is better because it has a headphone jack as well. But like, I I, I mean, it has it has the link port on it. But it has I don't a link think port. maybe that's what we've just assumed was it. I don't know. I don't see anything else on the cartridge shell that looks yeah, like a no, headphone I, or an audio I, port. So. I did a bit of Googling on this earlier. Yeah, it, it doesn't have one. It's it's just mods. 
that people did. Okay, so that makes sense. It's funny that we all three of us thought that for some reason. <laughs> so to close out the Super Game Boy section we have here, uh, here's a couple more comparisons from Aqualex. We have a stock Super Game Boy 2 followed by the sound modded Super Game Boy 2. There's still some noise in the latter, but there's less noise, so it's an improvement. Okay, so we were just talking about the Super Nintendo here because of the Super Game Boy, so let's actually just move on to the Super Nintendo itself. So the Super Nintendo, just like the regular Nintendo, uh, you know, the, the toaster, has AV and RF. And as we said, RF is bad. No RF. Don't do the RF. So AV. Um, so you can pull the audio from there. And the sound is actually pretty solid, honestly. There's not really a lot of noise to begin with. There is something insane you can do to get zero noise, though. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But unless you have a particular noisy SNES, we didn't find modding to be all that essential. Yeah, we're going to listen to a comparison here between an unmodded Super Nintendo followed by a modded Super Nintendo. This is the highway stage from Mega Man X with a bit of silence at the beginning so that we can hear the difference. Um, but honestly, you're probably not going to hear the difference. Yeah, I didn't really. I don't. I don't hear any difference between that. <laughs> no. Yeah. The the unmodded Super Nintendo is super clean sounding. I was gonna say. I know when I sampled that that I bumped up the gain on my audio interface just to see if I could hear any noise, and I really couldn't. No. So yeah, the, yeah. I think that's a testament to the audio quality out of a stock SNES. Yeah, it's really really clean. But to illustrate that there is a difference uh, in Audacity, I'm gonna amplify the silence. All the way. I'm going to drag the slider all the way to the right as high as it goes. I think it's like, you know, plus 50 dB or whatever. Um, and it will bring up noise. We can listen to the noise here in uh, Jeff's track. Now let's follow that up with... Actually, there's no point in even playing it because uh, in, in the modded Super Nintendo, there's literally zero noise. So amplifying it all the way uh, doesn't achieve any noise at all. So there, it's it's crazy. It's perfectly clean. So we should probably explain how we're getting these noiseless Super Nintendo tracks here. Yes, okay, so we'll finally get onto the mod here. Uh, we had a few noiseless tracks ripped for us by David Vienne, uh, the gentleman behind Plogue Chip Sounds. You can find him on Twitter, at PLGDavid. Uh, he supplied the noiseless Mega Man X for comparison, but here's another comparison without having silence to highlight the noise floor. See if you can spot the difference once again between his rip and my unmodded SNES. Once again, they just sound the same to me. <laughs> Probably all that noise damage, you know, uh, that I've had from playing in orchestras and bands over the years, but I don't hear any difference at all. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I really don't think there's a significant difference. But just because this mod may be less essential than the other mods we've gone over earlier, that doesn't make it any less cool. 
In fact, it's kind of mind blowing, and I, you know, I didn't know about anything like this until you, uh, Jeff, had brought this up earlier. Yeah. So in short, a Super Nintendo can be modded so that you can capture a digital stream of the audio. Uh, the Super Nintendo system generates this audio digitally and uses a digital to analog converter, or a DAC for short, to generate its analog audio outputs. Uh, because of this, you can actually tap into the direct digital signal before it gets converted to analog audio and record it as perfect digital noiseless audio. That's so freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And uh, David pointed out that you know there are other sound chips besides the Super Nintendo where this is possible, You know where they have an external DAC. Uh, this includes the FM part of the OPN1, uh, includes the OPNA slash OPNB and OPM, uh, includes the OPL1, 2, and 3, uh, the OPX, and even get this, Konami's VRC6. That's the ultimate mod. We need That needs to be done. Yes. Like this, like <laughs> finding out that just completely blew my mind. That, it, it, that, it, I can't believe that. That changes a lot of things. Like, I, I don't really have that much of a family com collection now, but, like, finding out that really makes me want to find my own, like, uh, Akumajo Densetsu cart and just cannibalize it to try out this mod. Absolutely. Uh, and as David points out, there's usually nothing off the shelf for modding these sound chips in this way. You'll typically need your own custom rig, which is probably why you don't see much of this. Uh, David modded his Super Nintendo to have a USB output for his audio. Uh, he sent me a picture of a USB cable wired from the DAC of his Super Nintendo hooked up directly to his laptop. It's, it's, it's good. What can I say? It's good stuff. It's awesome. It's crazy. <laughs> so thankfully, if you're looking to do this to your own SNES, it's a little bit more accessible than the other chips that we just mentioned. There's actually a pre-made board that you can buy from a company called Retrofixes, and there's a tutorial on Retro RGB that allows you to mod your SNES to have an SPDIF output. So that's a, a digital audio interface that allows you to output either through an optical audio cable or a coaxial audio cable if you wanted. Ah, nice. That's awesome. So if you're interested in doing that, I'd actually recommend following FirebrandX on Twitter at FBXGargoyle. They're working on their own board for this as well. They've been uh, also ripping complete soundtracks in Flack using this mod, so uh, we're going to link to uh, the show in the show notes to a forum thread where you can check out the 20 or so soundtracks that he's ripped this way so far. Let's take a listen to one of Firebrand's rips. Here's Divine Bloodlines from Castlevania Dracula X. <laughs>
So now that we've covered how to get the audio from your SNES console, let's cover how to play music. Music for the SNES is typically found in SPC format, which is named after Sony SPC 700 CPU core used in the SNES's audio processing unit. SPCs are basically dumps of the 64 kilobytes of RAM used by the audio processor. SPCs are really, really easy to find online, but are also fairly easy to dump yourself using most SNES emulators. Often, Super Nintendo soundtracks will be packaged in the RSN format, so it'll be just one .rsn file for the entire soundtrack, and it'll have the individual SPC files packaged inside. Uh, the kind of weird thing about RSN is it's just a, a kind of modified version of RAR, so if you want to get the individual SPC files uh, out of it, um, you can just literally rename the file extension .rsn to .rar, and you can use you know something like WinRAR to open it up. The SPC format isn't compatible with all games and soundtracks. The uh, the Video Game Music Preservation Foundation, I think they keep a list of uh, all these games. So uh, I'll get Patrick or Steve to put a link in the show notes for that. Uh, so these games do things to modify the SPC 700's RAM during playback. Like They'll do things like swapping out an audio sample on the fly or doing some sort of streaming audio. And that sort of thing can't really be captured in an SPC file since those are just kind of like individuals, like momentary snapshots of the SPC 700 RAM at a given potent time. So that's where the SNSF format comes in. Uh, this is a format that's pretty similar to NSF in a way. They're uh, basically ROM dumps that are stripped down to the bare essentials needed to play back the audio files. There's a couple drawbacks though. The uh, SNSF format is not exactly trivial to rip. The other main issue is that there's no way to play these back on hardware, at least that we know about. Um, and also, not all of the games that are unrippable in the SPC format have actually been ripped yet in the SNSF format. Yeah, isn't that right? Yeah, so the guy who created this format, they've already dumped about a dozen or so soundtracks, I want to say. But I think there's still a couple soundtracks that are undumpable as SPCs that have been yet to be converted to SNSF. So if you're like, <laughs> this is a call out to the audience here. Like, if you're interested in learning some uh, SNES programming and willing to strip down some ROMs, there, there's some... <laughs> there's, there's some gaps in this collection business is good yeah. <laughs> yeah i no, i had absolutely no idea that out of this world is a, uh, was amongst the unrippable list you know for the spc format so that's pretty crazy um but anyways moving on uh going on to our next topic playing back super nintendo music on hardware similar to the nes and game boy you can find several flashcard devices on the market today namely the retro usb snes power pack uh which i own and the SD2 SNES, and also the Super EverDrive. Um, the first, the Power Pack, does have built-in SPC playback, but there are a few issues and quirks which I've run into. Um, these have been fixed in a custom firmware developed by Ramsys. Uh, the firmware, known as Mufasa, smooths out the issues and is generally easy to use, uh, so I'm going to have to do that to mine. And uh, usually you can get the Super Nintendo Power Pack for about $145 from RetroUSB, uh, appears to be currently out of stock, though. The SD2 SNES cart, uh, which is by far the priciest, is sitting at $197, uh, but that also has built-in native SPC support. And also then, I guess, rounding out the bunch, you have the Super EverDrive at $86, but that low price comes with the lowest support for SPCs. To our knowledge, there's no way to directly play SPCs on this cartridge. But fear not... There is an SPC to ROM tool, so no matter which flash cart you have and what it supports, you can convert your music to a ROM that should work on any hardware. Yeah, that, that's sort of the reoccurring trend when you have, because we just talked about that with the Game Boy, where you have to convert the GBS to GB uh, ROM format. 
what happens is the soundtrack will turn into a ROM that, you know, you could just run like as a game in an emulator. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ROM itself it will usually be nothing but a blank screen with just some text on it that says like track one, track two, and you can usually press left or right or, you know, they'll come up with some interface for, for it, but it's usually pretty bare bones. Yeah, and I think this SPC to ROM tool only really does one track at a time. So like if you wanted to convert, say, a full SNES soundtrack to listen to on your hardware, you'd have to convert each individual SPC file to a ROM. And oh, like, to wow. be honest, this seems like quite a lot of work. <laughs> and like, I mean, I haven't actually tested it because I don't have a power pack or any sort of flash card myself. And I don't really have the desire to go through this process yeah. just to test this out. So let's move on to the next console we're going to talk about, which is the Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis has different outputs depending on the model, but to sum it up, and this includes both the Sega Mega Drive and Sega Genesis, the Model 1 has three outputs. It has a DIN connector for AV out, an RF output, and amazingly, even a headphone jack with a built-in volume control so you can mix your volume right off the console, which is actually really cool. Um, Whereas your Models 2 and Models 3 only have one output, which is a mini DIN connection. For Genesis, Models 2 and 3 were often set up to connect to TVs through the RF connection, uh, it's just that the single DIN connector could be used for either AV or RF output, depending on the cable you were using. It should be said that the Model 1s are associated with sometimes having the best sound out of the box. Uh, you do have to bear in mind, though, that there are different revisions of these models, though. Uh, like, there's more than just Model 1, 2, 3 of the Sega Genesis. Each of those models can be subdivided into different versions that exist. Yeah, so I did a little bit of looking online, and there's something like 24 different versions of the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive out there, once you count all of these like minor <laughs> hardware revisions. And yeah, that's not even counting the the weirder stuff out there, like the JVC XI, or the CDX, or like even the Sega Nomad. Like These are all technically Sega Genesis consoles. It would be a bit of, a bit of an ordeal to go through and compare and contrast all these, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I have probably nine different Sega Genesis revisions, like between Mega Drives and different kinds of versions. Um, And like, you know, I kind of like the sounds of them differently. You know, there's not like one I'd pick. You know, there's obviously, I guess, for lack of a better term, the right way we're supposed to hear the music, I think. Mm -hmm. But they all kind of have like little charms, I think, to them. Uh, One of my favorites, which is just kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of really crunchy and bad, is the the VA0 Mega Drive, which would be like the day one Mega Drive, that the audio is like crunchy. And it's kind of like really funny because like they've definitely, when they did the VA1, they were like, oh no, let's not do that because <laughs> it sounds, doesn't sound great. But it's really sharp, like like kind of uh, the FM kind of like bites into you. So, but the, I mean, like we're going to talk about a couple of them here, but you know, they're, they all have their own little weird kind of quirks and charm, I think. Some of them do sound like trash. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know, the the thing to keep in mind here is you can't trust all Model 1s, but bearing in mind that certain versions of it can have what's considered to sort of be the best sound, and that it has the headphone jack, in addition to the AV out, unlike the later models, this is why everyone generally recommends digging through Model 1s to get the best sound. So let's take a quick look at some audio comparisons. Comparing all of the differences and pros and cons of each revision would be a huge undertaking that would take way too long. So we thought the best way to handle this would just be to give basically a quick summary. What are the best two versions and also the worst two versions when it comes to audio? Yeah, we have audio examples that were provided to us by Kevin Burke from Florida Tech, uh, who you may remember from our Konami episode. 
He says that the general consensus is that the best sound will come from MD1VA3, that's the Model 1 Variant 3, and he also says that the headphone jack is preferred. Let's take a quick listen to that. Now we're going to take a listen to the MD2 VA4, that's Model 2 Variant 4. Uh, the main benefit of this console variation is not really going to be clear here, so you're just going to have to trust us on this one. We'll explain in a second. Let's just give it a listen. So the Model 2 Variant 4 tends to have the best quality playback for samples. So if a soundtrack is heavy in PCM, uh, it's sometimes preferred for that. Uh, the only problem is Bloodlines is not heavy on samples. Actually, Steve, aren't all the drums FM drums in Bloodlines? All the drums, all the drums and Bloodlines are FM drums. Um, as far as I like, I know, I'm pretty sure because I've never been able to find any kinds of samples in there when I've dug through and combed through and obsessed over that soundtrack so many times. Um, so, you know, in that case, though, what the listener might have been able to hear is that it sounded a little bit muddier overall. So that's why it's generally not considered as good as the last example we went over. But again, if you had something that was very PCM heavy, you might prefer that version. So um, so you could hear at least that it's quite not as good overall. But that last that sort of one soundtrack out of 10 that's heavy on PCM or something, maybe you, maybe you prefer that model. So. So if you're wondering why uh, that one sounds better on the samples, uh, it's it's a very deep rabbit hole. <laughs> I think we touched on it a little bit in the Sega Genesis episode, but um, you know, just take our <laughs> take our word for it. And you know, we'll post some links here under uh, you know the on the comments here that kind of explain it. So now let's listen to the worst of the worst. Here's MD2 VA1, so that's Model 2 Variant 1. So this is the original launch version of the Model 2 in the U.S. So right out the gate, they butchered the audio with a very hissy and dirty sound. See, for me, that's the one I grew up with. So like, I might have a little bit of nostalgia for this, you know, muffled sound. Kevin was even telling me that he gave an MD2 VA1 an overhaul. He gave it all new capacitors, a new DIN jack, a new voltage regulator, and a new 64-pin connector. Uh, so he gave it better components than it originally had, but the resulting audio still sounded like garbage. Um, so like, there really <laughs> is no best-case scenario for this revision, at least when we're talking about like unmodded consoles. If you find one of these in the wild, you know it's not something you want to sample audio from. So I guess, you know, we said we'd had two. So here's our second worst nomination. That would go to the MD1 VA7, which is the Model 1 Variant 7. Proof that you can't trust all Model 1s to have great sound. It's not quite as hissy as the last example, but it still sounds like you're listening to a vinyl record with fuzz caught on the needle. So let's talk about mods for the Sega Genesis here. There's a popular mod, a Tito's Crystal Clear Audio Mod, also known as CCAM for short. 
It was designed to get some of the worst variants of the system on par with the MD1VA3, so it can be a lifesaver if you're working with one of those systems, which are uh, often a lot cheaper than the good Model 1s. We'll link to it in the comments. Uh, there's a site that sells a board for the CCM for $25 uh, inside the US and for $30 internationally. There's also like a sort of successor to the Crystal Clear Audio Mod, and personally I'd argue that it even supersedes it. It's called the Mega Amp, and in concept it's the same as the CCAM. Like the goal of it is to recreate the audio from the best sounding Model 1 consoles. But like the biggest difference is that it's compatible with all Genesis's. Is that Genesis? Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, including like the Model 3 and the Nomad. I mean, not just the Model 2 consoles. And one of the great things is it comes roughly at the same cost as the CCAM. Ah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and one of the neat things about the design is that there's a couple different filtering options with it. Like you can recreate the uh, the harsher low pass of the original Genesis and roll off some of the high frequencies. Or if you want, you can use like a much less aggressive low pass filter and get a lot more treble and a lot more crispness. I, I just love having the option of leaving out that low pass filter if you want. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, so let's take a listen to some music from Sonic 3 from an unmodded Mega Drive 2 Variant Zero, followed by Mega Amp with unfiltered YM2612. These examples were supplied by VillaHead94 and Almost Original, and you'll hear how the music comes to life and becomes a lot more crisp with the mod. So the Mega Amp was designed by VillaHead94 and Ace from the Sega 16 forums. I personally have an early revision of the mod, but since then they've also designed a new version that handles the Sega CD audio path. Nice. Uh, and there's actually even a variant that doesn't support the Sega CD or the 32X like on purpose so that the board can be made smaller and more convenient to install in smaller devices like the Sega Nomad. While we were discussing this, the forum was actually down for maintenance, uh, but we imagine it'll probably be back up in time for anyone who's listening to this. We'll link to the thread about the Mega Amp in the comments. It has lots of examples and things to look at, so you know, it's very good stuff. Yeah. So, I guess that would lead formats. That would be the next thing we got to talk about here. So, the format for Sega Genesis, or really all things from Sega, and most things FM, would be VGM. Uh, which we talked about earlier. It supports a bunch of systems, and if you're writing original Sega Genesis music today or looking up rips of soundtracks, VGM is what you're working with. There's also this older format called GYM, uh, that's G-Y-M, which you might be familiar with. It worked similarly to the .VGM format, but it was inferior. Yeah, I was recently informed that one of the issues is that it was worse at compression. So um, I, think, I think there were other issues, but I think that's the biggest one, as it was explained to me. So not only, uh, you know, it just being a worse format on a technical level, you won't find as much music in that format to begin with because they switched over to VGM early enough to have that become the standard. So that's where you're going to find the most rips. So you really all need to be uh, aware of VGM. So let's say you have a VGM, you know, a VGM file here and you want to play it off your console. Well, you're going to need a flash card. And basically almost everything we're going to talk about today needs a flash card to play the music off. So... Right now, you know, the best of the best ever is the EverDrive series, I would say. And based on recent things I've read, perhaps somewhat controversial, and some of you may know what I'm talking about, the Mega Drive EverDrive V5 seems to be the safest cart and the most cost-effective, uh, I guess. Uh, it'll run you about $89. So the Mega EverDrive is not capable of playing back raw VGM files, so you'll need to use like a ROM builder such as VGM Play to make your VGM files into .gen format or .bin format ROMs, so it will read and play back on the flashcard. 
once you've done that, you just put the file onto your SD card and load it from the menu as if you were loading up any other ROM and you'll be on your way. I should mention that the Mega Evertribe series does actually have native support for GYM files, which is kind of cool, actually. Oh, weird. And that the Mega, yeah, it, I think it's probably left over from when like there was the earlier carts or whatever, but yeah, it, it definitely can play that back. Um, and this is, I would love to see how this works, but the Mega Everdrive V7, the top of the line model, can play back WAV files, which I guess it just does it through the PCM, but the, I think that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually just reading that you would need uh, older firmware for the Everdrive to play a WAV file that is actually not supported in the most recent versions. But you can find a YouTube video of Crix or CrixZZ, however you pronounce his handle, um, demonstrating it. He has an example of uh, some Nirvana playing through his Sega Genesis. Okay, so I think while it's still technically just a Sega Genesis, it's worth taking a little bit of time to talk about the Sega Nomad for a minute here. Yeah, it's an interesting system. Not only does it have a small speaker, which is surprisingly actually fairly powerful, um, and a 3.5mm uh, headphone jack, but it also has a mini DIN AV port, which I did not know about. I knew about the headphone jack, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty unique opportunity, I think. I mean, there's not too many handheld consoles that have both an AV lineout and a headphone jack. So what I decided to do for, for this example was take the Nomad and for the sake of keeping it sounding the same, use the same <laughs> Castlevania Bloodlines track that everyone here has heard like a million times so far. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> it's a, I love that track anyway, though. But okay, so let's take a listen. You'll hear the track using the Nomad's 3.5 millimeter headphone track, and then you're going to hear the Nomad's AV out. So what I noticed immediately, other than it doesn't sound great, is <laughs> that the headphone jack has a little bit of a, dare I say, a higher pitched hum in addition to just the regular noise. Am I imagining that? Does this mean in this case the AV is actually better than the headphone jack? It sounded that way to me, yeah. Yeah, I think you might be right there. Uh, I wonder if it has anything to do with like headphones requiring extra amplification to drive your headphone speakers, and it's just that provides an extra opportunity for noise to get coupled into the audio signal. I guess there's really nothing stopping you from modding it the same way, like we talked about modding Genesis consoles before. Uh, oh yeah, modding it would still get the best sounds, but yeah, it seems mm -hmm. like out of the box, the AV might be better than the headphone jack. That's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, I noticed that right away and I was like, oh, I, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking the AV was going to be worse. So I actually use the Nomad for performance every once in a while. So it looks like I'm holding something when I'm playing. <laughs> Um, but it's actually, it, it, yeah, I know, I know. Um, you know, instead of just holding a Nintendo controller, yeah. Chip dude. <laughs> but I mean, because, you know, you just want to interact with the audience. But anyway, so the interesting thing about the Nomad, though, is that I think that on big speakers, because it's so like, kind of like, I don't know how to say like any other way, like every sound is so compressed and pushed to the front. It sounds really brutal live. And it's kind of nice in its own particular way. Um, I, I definitely like using it for live. The other thing that's really interesting is the volume jack on here. If you put it like an eighth of a millimeter, that's already too loud for your headphones. 
So you can really turn this thing up. <laughs> you can turn this thing up. Like when I'm playing and I have and I have it plugged into my mixer, I have it at like just slightly turned up a little bit, and it's still too loud. Um, wow. So yeah, it, it's kind of I, I don't know why it's that way. I mean, and like I was thought mine was broken, but when I was talking with Kevin Burke, apparently they're all just that way. So, huh? That's crazy. So I guess that just wraps up all the Sega Genesis revisions and different ways that you can play Sega Genesis music. I see that the Genesis has the most sound variation of anything we've explored explored here, which is kind of makes it flatly one of the most difficult things to hear authentically off the console. And it makes modding your system almost a necessary choice, which I think that's kind of interesting. Absolutely. It's comparable to the Game Boy where there's a lot of different revisions and things to keep, you know, different versions of the console to keep in mind. But I think the, the Genesis does give the Game Boy a run for its money in terms of like all the little different things you have to look out for. Yeah. So there are a couple other Sega consoles from this era we want to briefly touch on. Let's start with the Sega Master System. And again, here we go. It's Sega, so there's a couple models that we have to choose from here. Uh, the Sega Mark III, the Sega Master System slash Power Base, um, and the Sega Master System MK2000 all have RF and DIN AV. However, the Sega Master System 2 is RF only and definitely the worst model in the bunch for sound. It even has cheaper internal components, so it's harder to mod, so just, just avoid it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, of the three AV models we mentioned, only two of them can play back all of the Master System's music out of the box. That's because the US Master System did not have access to the YM2413 slash OPLL. You may remember this from the Sega Master System episode. The Sega Mark III had an attachment that adds FM audio, known as the FM sound unit. And the Sega Master System MK2000 had a built-in OPLL. So that leads us into some mods. If you want to get your original US Master System to play back FM audio, we'd recommend performing the Worthington SMS FM mod. It's apparently pretty easy to install and just requires a little soldering and attaches to the expansion port on the back of the console. There's also a way to add the mod internally, but it's just a little bit more difficult. Another way to get great playback from your SMS is to not use your SMS. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but to use your Sega Genesis, the Sega Genesis already has the PSG built in. It's the exact same thing and can play non-FM SMS music. And using a Sega Genesis even offers some Sega Master System FM solutions, actually. Yeah, so with the Mega EverDrive V7, that includes an OPLL playback feature, which is really cool. There's even some modded power base converters. That's the device that you slip over the top of the Sega Genesis so it can play Master System games um, that, you know, it, they include FM when you mod them. So since you want both AV and FM, your best bet for a non-modded console is the Mark or the MK2000 and the Mark III with FM sound unit, or using a modded US SMS. No matter what, though, you're going to be through AV. Which brings us uh, actual audio mods. As far as we know, there aren't any really uh, go-to mods to improve the audio of the master system. So I did a little bit of research into this, actually. Uh, I don't actually have a master system to, you know, verify this information myself, but I did find a schematic on smspower.org, and it seemed to indicate that the SMS pretty much just directly connects the audio pins on the ASIC straight through to the AV out with no real, like, amplification or filtering or anything like that. I mean, there's a small capacitor there, but that's probably just for, you know, ESD protection of the ASIC and things like that. 
Uh, so you're pretty much getting a direct signal as possible uh, through the console's AV out, and I can't really think of anything you could do to really improve the audio. So if you happen to have one of the consoles that, you know, doesn't sound great, like, you know, the SMS version 2, you could theoretically tap off the VDP to bypass the audio buffer and the RF modulator and all that and restore the sound quality, like the same way we talked about modifying the NES. Yeah, this is definitely cool. Uh, maybe you could start doing this mod for people. <laughs> I mean, I probably could, but I'd like to have an SMS myself before I start offering this service out to anybody. So if anybody wants me to do this for them, send me an SMS to keep for myself and I might do it. <laughs> wow, that sounds like quite the deal. <laughs> so the Sega Master System uses VGM, just like the Genesis. Uh, in order to play music off your console, you'll need a flash cart once again. The Master EverDrive seems to be your best bet and costs $77. You could, of course, just run the music off your Mega EverDrive too, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Once you have a flash cart, you're going to need to get your VGM file packed into an SMS file or some other kind of executable file. So I managed to get this working on my Sega Mark III, and we were kind of, I think we were talking a little bit about how you know, I guess that, that newer uh, Super Nintendo format requires you to basically make a track per ROM. Um, this file thing does as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very, I mean, I was like cursing trying to get this working earlier, but I actually did. You know, you have to use DOS command line to merge two files, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it, you, you can use SMS VGM player as the actual thing. It's kind of from a long time ago, too. There isn't really anything new or new utilities for this, which I thought was really weird. So it's kind of sad. You know, I, I really do love the sound of the Sega Master System. I wish there was more things to work with it. So anyway, here's my Sega Mark III with the FM sound unit attached using the AV out that's on the FM sound unit. So it's closer to the YM2413 uh, playing a VGM from OutRun. <laughs> a tiny bit of hum there, um, but it sounds the same as many of the other AV outs. It's not like much worse than any of the other ones. Um, and I think that uh, OPLL off the actual chip always sounds crisper than you expect. It's so crazy. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, I didn't hear anything really wrong with it. Like, yeah, there is a little bit of hum and you probably could do something to get rid of that, but it's it's not mm -hmm. really bad enough that it's the console is screaming for mods, you know? Uh, so next on our list is the Sega Game Gear. Thank you. 
Um, this basically has the same audio as the Sega Master System, so uh, it's, you're going to be expecting to hear pretty much the same stuff, um, just minus the FM. The options here for sound output are pretty straightforward, headphone jack, and uh, onboard speaker. Yeah, you mentioned that the sound is the same, but I'm pretty sure that the Game Gear is pretty much just a uh, portable Sega Master System. Like, the biggest difference is that the Game Gear has a stereo sound output. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the Sega Master System episode, we struggled to figure out what the difference was between the SN76489 and the SN76496A, which are the sound chips inside the Master System and the Game Gear, respectively. And it turns out that it's just that the 96A is stereo and used by Game Gear. Um, but like, if you look online, there's still like pretty reputable places that are listing the 96A as the chip that's inside of the Master System. It's just not true. Yeah, just a little housekeeping on things we said, we said in the Master System episode here, but uh, we know that we, we couldn't figure that out. <laughs> so there's nothing too exciting about the Game Gear. Basically, you know, playback files are VGM-based, so you're going to get a Game Gear flash card, of course. We recommend the EverDrive GG, which is priced at $77. There's also the GG Pro, which is only about $60, but we don't really have any experience with it, so we're not sure how it works. Uh, it appears on the surface to be more complicated than the EverDrive GG. So, Yeah, so what you do to get the VGM files working on your Game Gear is pretty much the same process that Steve described for the Master System. Uh, you even use the same program, SMS VGM Player, to do it, and the EverDrive GG cartridge will read back SMS files just fine. So we had Steve record some tracks from his Game Gear using his EverDrive GG. Yes, and I thought about something a bit here that we didn't mention when we were talking about the Game Boy. Basically, you're going to get a lot more audible hum from your unit if you're using an AC adapter instead of batteries. I think it just comes from using a noisier power supply source. Like a, a battery is not going to have any additional noise that's going to add to the system, whereas as soon as you plug into an AC power source, you're adding a 60 hertz noise into your system. And you're going to need extra filtering and capacitors to deal with that kind of extra noise. I mean, most power supplies are going to have these kind of filters, but I mean, with aging capacitors and all that in these vintage electronics, you're running the risk of adding more noise every time you use an AC power source. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, so I wanted to really prove this and, and so we can all hear it too. Because like, you know, we, it's something definitely the Game Boy guys talk about. But yeah, I, I, you know, Game Gear has, you know, probably the same problem. So I took a track from Sonic Spinball with the Game Gear using batteries. And then again, with the Game Gear plugged into the MK2103 power supply, which is the standard power supply for it. Trust me, it took me a long time to find six AA batteries in 2018. Um, <laughs> it was, there's a lot of remotes that have had, were reset and now the time on my MSX doesn't work anymore. So, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay. You'll first hear it with the batteries and then with the power adapter. See if you can see if there's more of a hum or not. is actually really subtle um but if we amplify the silent parts and compare those before and after uh you can definitely hear there's there's more noise to the one with the power adapter i don't think it's as pronounced as like other things like the game boy but mm -hmm. it, it's it's still noticeable for sure I, I think the reason though it's better to bring up here than with the game boy is that the game gear is a much bigger battery hog and drain than the game boy is 
Yeah, so I, I guess people would be more likely to want to use an AC adapter with yeah. this. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, no one really runs into a situation with the Game Boy where they're like, oh, I need to plug it in. You know, I don't know. I feel like the, the batteries go a long way with the Game Boy. So, those, and, and, those yeah. two extra batteries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the two extra batteries. So we haven't really talked about it yet, but uh, there's also uh, the possibility of mods for this console. The big one that everybody talks about for the Game Gear is the McWill screen mod, which helps the screen, but we're here talking about the audio. The only real audio mod we were able to find is kind of interesting. Some people are consoleizing the Game Gear so they can play it on a regular TV. This often includes putting the SMS FM mod, which we just talked about, on the Game Gear, which is kind of cool. Uh, also gives the system stereo AV outputs. Yeah, so consoleizing the Game Gear and getting AV out is probably your best bet for clear audio. Um, but we're unable to get an example of this output because um, I don't have it. And the, the consoleized mods are fairly expensive that I've seen. Um, so if anyone who's listening has examples of the consoleized like output, really love to hear if it's any like you know softer or if like there's not a lot of home. I'm very curious about that. So that pretty much covers all of the Sega products and most of the major consoles from this era. But we would be remiss to not briefly mention a couple others. There were some systems we just couldn't find as much information about, uh, but we still felt we should have a small discussion about them as a group here. These consoles were also not discussed in previous episodes, so you know this is new territory and stuff we plan on addressing in the future more. So the first one we're going to talk about here is the PC Engine, also known as the TurboGrafx-16. So the original PC Engine, like the Famicom, is RF only. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> and the US TurboGrafx-16 was also only RF which I just learned recently, and it kind of blew my mind, because the TurboGrafx, even though it's an 8-bit console, it does have, like, the 16-bit graphics processor mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, there's debate of whether it's an 8-bit or 16-bit console, but the point is is that it had good graphics, and to only have RF out when you had good graphics, like, that hmm. is really, really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things you could do to improve this was purchasing a Turbo Booster. Uh, this used the massive expansion port on the back of the console to get yourself an AV out. If you look for one of these on eBay now, you'll probably be pretty upset with the price, though. All, all it does is provide composite video out and stereo output. And then and then the Turbo Booster Plus, which is the secondary mod of this, gives you the ability to save games, basically. Since the pins on the back expansion port directly relate to composite signal and audio, as if, like, literally one pin is composite signal, one signal is... In, it, it's literally pin per pin on the back of the, that massive port. You can also just get a simple mod where you get those, like, you know, those RCA clips, the little clips that you kind of slide onto the pins, uh, and you can just literally do the mod yourself. I've done that. It's awesome. <laughs> like, instead of spending $150 on something that just gives me AV, I spent, like, $9 at Radio Shack. Um, <laughs> so it actually helps. Uh, and it's much cheaper than the Turbo Booster. But even then, it's still pretty ugly. So any model upgrade past the original PC Engine or TurboGrafx-16 did have a DIN connector for AV output. Either way, though, you're going to want to have AV for your PC Engine and TG-16 music. And I was reading that the Turbo EverDrive will allow you to play back HES files. That's the format for this. One of these will run you about $86. There were other flashcards too, but it seems like this is the best option that, that we could find. 
Since I lack a model that actually has AV right now, I looked all over for my cables. They're probably lost somewhere, but I managed, <laughs> I managed to record an audio example of RF output. Yeah, it's fantastic. For my TG16 using Turbo EverDrive. So here's an HES file off a of Turbo EverDrive, and here's Devil's Crush. You can tell the episode's winding down when we're resorting to RF <laughs> recordings, when the subject is supposed to be optimal recording setups. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I will say something that I did discover when I was doing this. I literally took out all eight of my random TVs that I have here. Uh, I'm glad my wife was not home because she does not like when that happens. Um, it's usually, It looks like <laughs> I, I can't even describe what it looks like in here. I'm glad the door is closed. Um, but so I used a different TV and actually different RF. Uh, versus what I used for my Famicom. And I would say that it's actually less noisy, like a lot less noisy. Um, so I think it's interesting that RF buzz really de like kind of varies depending on your setup. I think even when I use the TV that I use for the Famicom, it made that kind of loud noise. And this other TV you made less of a loud noise. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I guess you really have to consider the audio path inside of your TV mm -hmm. when dealing with RF signals. We've already talked about RF modulators, but there's also like the RF demodulator, which is inside your TV that separates the RF signals into separate video and audio. And these these are going to have audio filters and things like that. Like it's it's yeah. not too surprising to see differences from TV to TV. Uh, so moving on, the next one we'll talk about briefly is the Atari Lynx. Yeah, what, what a console. Um, there are two models of the Atari Lynx, which would be the Lynx and the Lynx 2. I, up until this point, I had no clue there was actually a Lynx 2. Um, both had speakers and headphone jacks. The original Lynx is mono output, but the Lynx 2 is a stereo output. So apparently there are a few games that use the stereo feature. Uh, the list we found says Clacks, Road Blasters, and a couple others. But uh, because only a mono version of the console would mean that you'd miss out on some components and features of these soundtracks, we'd probably recommend going with a Lynx 2. 
For flashcarts, there's plenty of options, but most people seem to use Saints SD Multicart slash flashcart or Linksman's flashcart. There's also a couple other projects that seem to be ongoing, like there's a big community kind of working on this right now. But as of I saw as of the end of last year, a lot of them are not completed yet. So once you have a flashcart, you just get your, uh, well, no, because there isn't a format for this, right? Like, what's, what the hell is up with the Atari Lynx? I've, I, tried, I've tried looking this up before, and I could never find anything. I, I, I spent two angry hours trying to look this up earlier today. And it's just kind of like dead ends. And like, I don't know, like, you know, and it, it'll say like, oh, you can play the music file, but it never says what the music file actually is. It just it never says what that is. Um, and I've downloaded different things and they're all LNX format, um, which is the, the ROM executable, I guess, for uh, links. So I really don't know, um, you know, and there's probably information out there, but it's probably buried under a ton of posts and stuff like that. So if anyone listening actually knows what it is, please tell us. Uh, my guess is just that the sound files are just sorted differently than what we're used to or there hasn't been any real effort or focus on that because i think it's kind of it seems like a young even in its emulation right now so if you can find whatever these uh, music files are uh and put them in the links format which is basically the rom format then you can play them off the console uh apparently you can even use this to play back four channel mod files on the links yeah which is really cool actually <laughs> yeah that's unexpected yeah, so there's also like a tracker floating around called Chipper, which allows you to make your own Lynx music and play it back off the console for all you chiptune listeners out there. It appears that it's been abandoned, though, but there, there's a couple demos of it working. Uh, we'd love to know more about this program. If anyone out there would like to share in the comments, uh, you know, examples would be great. Last thing we'll check out about briefly is the Neo Geo Advanced Entertainment System, or AES for short. Yes, this was the home version of the famously expensive Neo Geo system. The console had a headphone jack and uh, the AV DIN output. It even had a volume slider too, I think if I recall correctly, so it was kind of similar to the Genesis in that way. Um, so Neo Geo uses VGM, so that's uh, that's a good format, right? A lot of FM uses VGM, so you can listen to YM2610 tracks, you know, on any VGM player. But there doesn't appear to be a way to play back VGMs on the Neo Geo, not without compiling them into some kind of ROM. And then furthermore, there doesn't appear to be a way to compile them into a ROM that doesn't require you to basically write it into a ROM. You know, there's no like, tool, as far as I can see. And even if you were to get around that, the flashcart, which is the Neo SD AES, will run you about $617. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, nothing about the Neo Geo is cheap. I remember my uh, friend Carlson, who sells like imported video games. I remember asking mm-hmm. him like, "What's the single most expensive game you've ever sold?" And the sad part is, is I can't remember what it was, but I know it was for the Neo Geo. <laughs> Does not surprise me. It, it's I w- it's interesting, kind of like dipping into Neo Geo for a little bit to see what's going on with it. And there's like a large effort to preserve a lot of things because some of these cartridges are so rare and are so expensive that no one who you know people have them in collections, but they're not actually pulling the carts. So there's like a push and pull. You know, they're not actually, like, taking the ROMs off the carts. So there's, like, a push and pull where collectors want it to have value and people want to play the games. So uh, it's kind of interesting, you know. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything like that in, like, the NES community, for, per se. Um, but, I mean, I guess people paid a lot of money for these carts and, you know, they, they want to hold on to that or something. Um, but I, I just thought it was really interesting to see a lot of arguing on forums about that. Yeah, for the amount of, like, preservation efforts there are for video games and video game music, it would be nice to see that translate to the Neo Geo console. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think that about wraps things up. Uh, if there were any systems we didn't cover that you want to know more about, um, please leave a comment. Uh, and, you know, maybe when we get to, if it's a system we haven't done yet, especially, we'll keep this in mind moving forward. You know, like, it's not a subject we've talked about in past episodes, but when we get to a new console that we haven't touched yet, this is something we're likely to touch upon. Yeah, and thanks, Jeff, for coming on. It was really great having you here. And, you know, the your insight here was invaluable because, you know, a lot of this technical stuff, like, I, I'll just say I don't know much about it at all. So <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I learned a whole lot. Um, I know more than I really want to know about RF modulators, uh, but <laughs> I, I know what they do now, and I'm not going to tell people to say the wrong things. <laughs> About them, so um, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, you just for the listeners out there, you should you, you yeah, should you should ask Steve to send you the original script for the RF modulators part that we talked about here. It was it was well, bad. it turned it turned into a six hour <laughs> rabbit hole. So um. it did. It did. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to learn how they work actually. So I I appreciate that. Yeah, this has been a really fascinating for me too. Like, there's definitely things that I've learned like through doing research for this particular podcast recording and like just getting to talk with you guys. I mean, you guys are like pretty much fountains of knowledge as as you are. So like, it, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you guys. And hey, hey, we don't get to hang out that often. So this has been really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for stopping by. Hey, anytime. So, Steve, uh, what else is going on? Well, uh, you know, uh, we just, I guess, well, I technically did, but you provided the great script for our really successful uh, panel at MagFest. That was actually really fun. Um, And it was, like, really great to see (laughs) a lot of the listeners. I was really surprised that that many people came, (laughs) especially since it was, like, 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, So that was really cool. And, like, you know, it's one thing to see the, the, the little ticks on here and the likes and the comments and stuff what's another just be in a room full of people who want to learn about this stuff um so you know it was really a real special moment for me and i really appreciate it it was like uh, that's probably one of the coolest things that i've ever been a part of and you guys made it that way so oh absolutely you know even though i couldn't make it it was kind of a yeah that's a major bummer that sucks you know what i I was very happy with the whole thing though i mean like it sucks i had a, a work uh conflict thing come up that prevented me from going to magfest um, but yeah. I was still very positive and stoked about the whole thing. Like I was very happy, sort of putting the presentation together and like knowing that you could still mm-hmm. perform it, um, and just seeing like the pictures and the tweets about it and the feedback that I got was like super, super, uh, just it was super, super heartwarming. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, you know hearing about how it went down. And uh, we're definitely going to do more panels in the future. So uh, yeah, yeah, have us invite us, please. Yeah, <laughs> we love to, we could talk about this stuff all day. Oh, absolutely. So we would. Let- so you know. We'll, <laughs> We'll be, you know, trying to set up stuff at MAGFest again in the future as well. But I'm sure, you know, we'll start looking out for other events as well because it's just, it was a lot of fun and I, I want to keep that going. So, yeah, yeah. So we're going to move on to comments now uh, and talk a little bit about the MSX episode. So the first thing I'm going to say right out of the bat is when we talked about the Turbo R and we talked about the PCM channel, we played an example from Illusion City. Um, Illusions, and I basically said, oh, it uses PCM. And it doesn't. And, and Trackman was even surprised, but yeah, it actually doesn't use the PCM. Uh, it just uses the straight up OPLL. So uh, yeah, that's that, that's my bad. And, uh, I, and it was definitely pointed out. And I feel stupid because <laughs> when I listened to the track, I was listening to it. I was wondering like, oh, I wonder if that's just OPLL drums. But, you know, like I had that moment too. So I should have double checked as well. So it's kind of, we both screwed up, screwed up on that. So yeah, one of the comments here verifies that the f- fray for the Turbo R actually uses the PCM, but it only uses it for voice samples. That's from Lauren Lawrence Holst, I believe. If, if I'm butchering that, I'm sorry. 
um, and they, they continued to write the downside of PCM support and the Turbo R was that it needed full CPU control. Wow, that sucks. So it doesn't actually run like the MS Audio's PCM channel, and it wasn't used in music a lot because of that. VGM Play MSX uses it in combination with the SFG5 when you play Sega Mega Drive music through that, though. That's actually really cool. Oh, yeah, and so we were talking about another thing that came up in that episode was talking about the stereo capability of PSG. Uh, we mentioned that the MSX was like rarely routed that way to have stereo, um, but that other systems did use the stereo more frequently. But XYZ commented, I think a Speccy expert uh, might have some corrections here because it doesn't seem like every model had a stereo AY interface. Hell, that 48K model of the Spectrum didn't even have an AY, uh, and then he sort of imitates the ZX beepers going nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. Like, we honestly don't know very much about the Speccy. No. I know that it, some of it has stereo output, so yeah, it's definitely something we have to think out a bit more, uh, you know, for if we want to do an episode on it. It's, it's something that I have no experience with, so... Yeah, uh, thanks for the uh, clarification. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to doing a ZX Spectrum episode. It, it's going to be a bit redundant to the MSX episode in the sense that, you know, talking about the PSG audio, uh, it's kind of the same thing. But mm-hmm. I do feel more re- rewarded. Like, I feel like the MSX music gets better as it evolves. But because mm-hmm. the ZX Spectrum kind of just dead ends with the PSG, it goes further. And I feel like there's more better PSG soundtracks on the ZX Spectrum than the MSX. Uh, I, I feel like, too, that the MSX eventually becomes a, a spot for ports for PC-98 games, mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of original games. So I think that like there's still a lot of original specy games, and I think that that's why that, that evolves, as opposed to someone whose job is just be like, oh, I have to port this to OPLL. <laughs> Uh, fine. You know, when they have the OPNA in front yeah. of them. And and the the Specky episode is where we're going to go into one-bit uh, speaker music. That's There's going to be some really yeah. cool stuff there, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. The other thing, too, is I don't know how it happened, but I said I was trying to say Nichibutsu, or, like, you know, the company, and I said something completely messed up. I have no clue what I said, and it made it in there. So someone had pointed that out. I don't remember where the, the comment was, but, yeah, I totally screwed that up. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, with uh, the comments kind of settled here from the MSX episode, let's move on to name that game. Uh, so, did anyone get it this time? Yeah, yes, they did, actually. Um, so Awesome. Yeah, and it was actually, I had meant to post a sort of hint if we went a while without getting it, and we did go a while without anyone submitting an answer, but I forgot to post the hint, and someone still showed up and got it, so that was very exciting. Uh, let's take a quick listen to the track again. And so that track is Weeping Willow from King's Quest V. And that was correctly guessed by Snyderman. So very good job. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was originally going to post. So that game was also ported to the NES. And I was like tempted to include the NES version of that track. But then I was like, hmm, we've got a lot of NES wizards in here. So I I decided to branch out a little bit and post the uh, PC version. Yep. So we've got another track picked out for you guys. Uh, See if you can name that game. There's only one last thing we have to do here. Do we have a closing song for this episode? So 
actually played a brief segment from this earlier. Uh, this is Dreamer from Streets of Rage 2. This was sampled from Jeff's Mega Amp modded Sega Genesis, uh, and it sounds great. It doesn't have the low-pass filter in there, so it's got a nice, uh, crisp and clean sound to it. Um, so I, I just really love this track and how it sounds here. So uh, thanks for listening, and this has been Retro Game Audio. <laughs>